Hello, I'm Jason Rugard of the Movie Mavericks Podcast. Welcome to a special summer show. Every Friday, I'll be taking a week-by-week look back at the summer of 1995. This was a box office season that was amongst the most competitive and influential in movie-going history. On each show, I'll be chronicling the performance, critical response, and historical relevance of the biggest hits and costliest misfires that shaped the summer of 1995. Our first film is Die Hard with a Vengeance. In the hands of a mastermind of terror. I want to play a game with Lieutenant McLean. What kind of game? Simon Says. The path to revenge leads straight to John McLean. If we don't do what this guy says, he's going to blow up another public place. Why me? What has he got to do with me? I have no idea. He just said it had to be you. Nice to be needed. Simon says, get to the paper in Wall Street Station by 10.20, or the number three train and its passengers vaporize. I'm not jumping through hoops for some psycho. That's a white man with white problems. You deal with it. Where the hell are you going, McLean? I know what I'm doing. Not even God knows what you're doing. This guy wants to pound on you till you crumble. Are you aiming for these people? No. Well, maybe that mine. He wants you to dance to his tune and then kill you. Oh, dear. You don't like me because I'm white. I don't like you because you're going to get me killed. On May 19th. This is a bad idea. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a New York police officer. I'm going to ask you to calmly and quietly start moving towards the other end of the car. When the theater goes dark, the roof blows off. Bruce Willis, Jeremy Irons, Samuel L. Jackson. Congratulations, you're still alive. Yippee-ki-yay, mother. In a John McTiernan film, Die Hard with a Vengeance. John McClane, NYPD. Are you all right? Yes. Laundry day. Die Hard 3 exploded onto screens, debuting in the number one spot atop the box office charts. Its opening weekend gross of $22 million, or $40 million adjusted for today, was slightly underwhelming, considering that it was the first of the season's potential blockbusters. However, the film had staying power, and would spend six weeks in the top ten and close with a final gross just north of $100 million, or about $170 million today and its worldwide gross of $366 million would total out to over $700 million in adjusted figures. It would ultimately rank as the fifth highest grossing film of the summer, proving that there was plenty of financial viability left in the franchise. Despite these healthy grosses, it would be another 12 years before audiences were given a follow-up film. The premise of the film was repurposed from a script entitled Simon Says, which was supposed to star Brandon Lee. After Lee's tragic death, Warner Brothers purchased the screenplay and then brought on a team of writers to fashion it into a Lethal Weapon sequel. The idea proved problematic, and in frustration, Warner Brothers sold the project, which was then purchased by Fox and rewritten as a Die Hard film. 
which is a miracle considering the film actually hangs together and feels like it's part of the universe created in the first two movies. Amongst the various scripts that were written for Die Hard 3 and ultimately rejected by Bruce Willis were concepts that would become Under Siege and Speed 2. Lawrence Fishburne was originally offered the co-starring role of Zeus Carver, but wanted a higher fee. And during negotiations, Samuel L. Jackson caught everyone's attention in Pulp Fiction, and the part was quickly recast. There are at least two alternate endings that were filmed. Both were dropped by the studio for fear of lack of action and that they showed a menacing side to our hero. In these scenes, McLean is presented as a cruel man as opposed to someone fighting out of self-defense. I rank Die Hard with a Vengeance as possibly the best of the sequels. It's a film that I've seen dozens of times. I can recall seeing it twice during its theatrical run alone. The VHS tape was nearly worn out from me and my buddies re-watching it repeatedly. So much so that my friend and I figured out a second way to complete the water riddle presented in the movie centerpiece. However, we were on LSD, so I can't speak for our theory's validity. Still, Die Hard 3 is solid entertainment and holds up to this day. Our next film is Crimson Tide. As you no doubt heard, my exo has appendicitis. Your name was at the top of the list. That's good to know, sir. It was a short list. There's trouble in Russia. So they called us. And we're going over there and bringing the most lethal killing machine ever devised. The last time we hit this state of emergency was 32 and a half years ago during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this is what it's all about, gentlemen. It's what we train for. This year... We have a properly formatted emergency action message from National Command Authority. What we've always known... Bravo, Echo, Echo, Charlie, Alpha... ...becomes what we've always feared. Gentlemen, this is the captain. Russian rebels have threatened to launch against our country and are fueling right now. This is not a drill. Now... Sir, we have a possibly submerged submarine. You find out who that is. Receiving emergency action message. Recommend alert one. The battle for survival begins. That's a message fragment. Sir, we don't know what this message means. Our target package could have changed. I've made a decision. There's no place for fear. He's lost his nerve. I'd rather go out myself and get this one wrong. There's no room for mistakes. If we launch and we're wrong, what's left of Russia is going to launch at us. I'm captain of this boat. I don't have to think this over. There's no time for doubt. The missile system's ready to launch in six minutes. You repeat this order or I'll find somebody who will. Come where you want, sir. And nothing can stop the tide. God help you if you're wrong. If I'm wrong, then we're at war. God help us all. Crimson Tide took the second slot on the weekend top 10. This was its second weekend release after having opened number one the weekend before. Its 18 million, or $30 million adjusted, would balloon to a healthy 91 million, or $155 million today, off of a $53 million budget. 
A lengthy run based on positive word of mouth placed Crimson Tide amongst the top 10 for seven consecutive weeks. Its final domestic gross of 91 million would be enough to rank as the sixth highest grossing movie of the summer season. Crimson Tide was directed by Tony Scott, who reunited with his Top Gun Days of Thunders collaborator, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. This would be one of the last projects released before the death of producer Don Simpson. It was written by Michael Schieffer with an uncredited rewrite from Quentin Tarantino. The film stars Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman and features a dozen now famous faces in small supporting roles. It was rumored that during production, Washington took Tarantino aside and let him know of his displeasure at the liberal use of racial slurs in Pulp Fiction. The story has never been substantiated, but a Washington-Tarantino collaboration has also never materialized. While the final casting is excellent, with both stars giving knockout performances in a pop drama, the original pairing of Brad Pitt and Warren Beatty is also an intriguing what if. The film was scored by Hans Zimmer, who won a Grammy Award for the main theme. That award-winning theme would also be used in numerous trailers for the next decade. Crimson Tide would win three Academy Awards the following year for sound, sound editing, and mixing. This is a very sentimental movie to me. I started working my first job that summer, and no less than a local movie theater. And my first night was the opening night of Crimson Tide. I couldn't believe how many people came out to see the flick. I watched the movie numerous times that summer, popping into a screening for a few minutes at a time on breaks and lunch. Then I used my hard-earned dollars to purchase the Laserdisc when the movie premiered on home video formats later on. While I've seen it a number of times in the following years, Crimson Tide has never played with the same intensity or explosiveness as it did on the big screen. Still, this is one of my favorite movies from the summer of 1995. Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington are in the same Navy, but they're not on the same side in deciding whether to fire nuclear missiles at Russia in Crimson Tide. I'm Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. Our first movie is Crimson Tide, and this is a terrific, absorbing, well-made thriller about a battle of wills between the captain of a U.S. nuclear submarine and his second-in-command. The stakes are high. Guess wrong, and they start World War III and kill a billion people. Crimson Tide looks like a thriller and it plays like a thriller, but what distinguishes it are its ideas. In the high-pressure world of a submarine in crisis, the movie stages a debate that gets to the very heart of nuclear deterrence. The paradox is that nuclear weapons only deter war as long as you don't use them. Yet to delay could mean the destruction of your own side. At the end of Crimson Tide, somebody says that neither side was right and neither side was wrong. I'm not quite sure that's correct, but certainly Tony Scott's direction doesn't stack the deck and make only good guys and bad guys. What's fascinating is how persuasive both arguments, both Hackman's and Washington's, really are. Well, you know, you mentioned Tony Scott, and I think he's the real hero of this picture, the director of the film, mm -hmm. because 
I frankly saw where this picture was going. I mean, you've got this classic situation. You mean you intuited that World War III might not break out? <laughs> More than that, I knew of the, the, the way the picture was going to work these two guys. What the director does is take us inside this boat, and we are really there. Mm -hmm. Like we were in that great uh, submarine film, film Das Boat, mm -hmm. we are taken in here, and through dolly shots and steady cams, we feel we're a part mm -hmm. of this thing. The claustrophobia of it, the energy of it, mm -hmm. that I liked very much. Tony Scott is the director of Top Gun. He could do it in the sky, he can do it underwater. He's good with big machines. Yeah. Our last film is Forget Paris. Well, maybe I got married too fast. No, oh, there's no such thing as too fast or too slow. It's whenever it's right. Well, you did move a little fast. I wasn't looking for anybody, but he just came along. Mickey. No basket! No basket! After the buzzer! Are you crazy? No, you didn't get it off, Charles. Just this! You didn't get it off your wall! It was so different than the ones I knew. Oh, he's adorable. Every time I see him, I want to pick him up and give him a hug. You're out of here, Kareem! This is my farewell game. I will let me be the first to say farewell. I love being a referee. Wake up, it's God, I hate your guts. I hope you die. The other ones were very polished, stylish. Yes. Then this little referee shows up. <laughs> made me laugh. As only a little referee can. Did you always want to be a referee? No, I started out as a player. Oh? Yeah. yeah. What are you looking at? No, what, just... Then I'm vertically challenged? <laughs> He went to the museum, and, and he went to the ballet. Forget Paris. He was courting. They'll do anything when they're courting. It's very clear. Rodin never really said what he was thinking about. I think he's thinking, how did this happen? Three drinks and I'm nude. Castle Rock Entertainment presents in Billy Crystal and Deborah Winger in a comedy about love after marriage. You know something? You're the only one I can talk to. Forget Paris. Our love is here. Wasn't it a soccer game a few years back where the referee got killed? Yes, yeah, I'm against that. Are you? Stay. Forget Paris limped onto the big screen, debuting in the third position for the weekend, with a $6 million gross, or $10 million adjusted. It totaled out at $33 million, or $56 million in today's money. Forget Paris was written, directed, and stars Billy Crystal. His writing collaborators, Lowell Gantz and Babalu Mandel, are the team responsible for city slickers and parenthood, to name a few. Unfortunately, the trio wasn't able to recapture the magic of City Slickers, nor When Harry Met Sally, which this film is a sort of companion piece to. Columbia Pictures unwisely scheduled Forget Paris up against the Meg Ryan-Kevin Klein romantic comedy, French Kiss. Perhaps this caused market confusion or audience indifference. Regardless, Forget Paris was viewed as a box office disappointment. I think this is an underrated movie and is a fairly good example of the genre during the 90s. It's glossy, funny, and overly sentimental. One of the most enjoyable aspects of the picture is watching Crystal play a short-statured NBA ref. 
This provides opportunities for basketball legends Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Sean Kemp, and David Robinson. This overlooked film may have lost the box office fight against the similarly titled French Kiss, but I prefer this Billy Crystal Helm comedy to that unbearably obnoxious Meg Ryan vehicle. That'll do it for today. Join us next week when we look back at the Memorial Day weekend of 1995.